Let's give the praise band a big hand. Would you do that? Thank you. Thank you, folks. All the people have been such a blessing that have led us in worship uh, throughout this week. And it takes, uh, it takes a lot of preparation, a lot of practice, obviously a lot of talent to do that. And then we heard, before we even got going, we got to take all this stuff down. Remember, it was all set up. All of that equipment back there on that table and back there and here. And uh, that just reminds me that things like this just don't accidentally happen. You have to have some good leadership, managerial people, and uh, helpers who are willing to say, hey, I'll do whatever needs to be done to make this a successful um, camp. So my thanks to all of you. I, I don't even know who all of you are. There are things that are going on right now with the children, with the teenagers, ministries, that I haven't seen any of those people. I mean, I've seen them, but I don't even know who they are because they come and go and mix in and out of here um, and uh, really go uh, relatively unnoticed. You may know them, know them, but I don't know who they are. But I know that they're an important part of making this a successful uh, weekend in uh, camp. Uh, here in Warrensburg. So thank you to all of the people that have had a part in doing that. And I want to just thank uh, uh, the leadership for inviting me. This is the fourth year I've had the privilege of coming out here and being part of this camp. And it is a different week. And I know the, you know, uh, when you're on a platform and you're performing, and I'm not saying they're, they're leading in worship, but in any performance, you draw energy from the, your audience, you do. And those of you that have done that before in acting or music or whatever it is, you draw uh, um, some of your energy from the response of the people. But putting these masks on, it's hard to sing with a mask on. I, you know, you're getting blowback all the time. You're being overwhelmed with your own uh, carbon dioxide that's coming back in your face when you're singing like that. And certainly it muffles the sound. Uh, at my age, you know, your hearing uh, begins to go and probably did about 20 years ago. But when I was young, I blew my brains out on rock music just listening. I used to put the headphones on and crank it all the way up. And my I'd be out in the living room. My wife could hear it in another part of the house when it was just through the headphones. But anyway, so I lost probably 20% of my hearing when I was younger. But now when people talk to me with a face mask on, it's like, you know, I don't know what you're saying. So if I say yes to something I shouldn't have, forgive me, all right, or no to something, because I'm not sure what you're saying just with these masks. So for those of you that are up here on the platform, I know it's the response from the crowd isn't there, but there's good reason for that with these masks on. And, and um, anyway, someday this will be behind us, I'm, I hope soon anyway. All right, we're gonna we're not going. We're gonna go into the third presentation. So if you can move the uh, slides, that's exactly right. That's where we want to be. We're gonna wrap this up in this hour right now. It's about ten thirty-eight. We will be. I'm gonna take about twenty minutes on this lesson, maybe twenty-five, and then twenty on the last lesson. We'll bring it to a close. So without faith, it is impossible to please God. It's impossible. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. 
So right now I want to talk about this, this term I used yesterday and earlier, apologetics. It's kind of a scary term. Uh, we're not apologizing for Christianity. That's not what it means. But apologetics basically is a defense of what you believe and why you believe it. So apologetics isn't just systematic theology. Systematic theology is systematizing your beliefs, the divinity of Christ, doctrines of the Bible, angelology, soteriology, the doctrines of salvation, etc., etc. That's systematic theology. That says, this is what I believe the Bible says about this subject. That's systematic theology. Apologetics is different. Apologetics says, not only do I believe that, but this is why I believe that to be true. And what you do is you prepare yourself to defend the attacks against your faith. Well, I don't believe that Jesus Christ ever really lived. So how do you, if somebody says that, how do you defend the statement that you do believe that he lived? What would you do? Well, I might say something like, well, uh, there are more books, and I believe this to be true, there are more books written about Jesus Christ than any other historical character in the history of mankind. So to say that you don't believe uh, that he was a real person, what you're doing is, I could say, well, I don't believe in Abraham Lincoln. Well, there's many, many more uh, accounts of Jesus Christ historically, and even by those who are not spiritual or religious people account of the reality or the existence of Jesus Christ. They may not believe that he was God, but they do uh, uh, validate the statement that he was a real person who lived at this particular time. So that's what apologetics is, basically. Now, for some people, it's uh, intimidating because there's a little bit more thinking in this than maybe some other things. Not only intimidating, but uh, at the same time, uh, some people just don't want to get into discussions or arguments. They just don't want to. They want to state what they believe to be true. They want to live with it and enjoy their Christianity. And if there are people out there who question it, that's their problem. They can go to the seminary or they can go to the Bible college or they can go to the pastor, and the pastor will take care of that. He that cometh to God must believe that he is. We are, according to First Peter chapter 3, as Christians, we are supposed to be prepared to give an answer to every man that asketh of the hope that lieth within us. And that's a loose quotation of that verse. But we're supposed to be prepared to defend the faith is what that means. We ought to have a reason to believe. And it should be more than just because my pastor told me or my parents told me or I learned it in, a, uh, in D2 or D1 or something like that. We ought to have a logical, reasonable, conversational explanation of why we believe what we believe. That's what apologetics is all about. Now, I brought my favorite apologetics book. Now, the, my favorite is the Bible itself, but that's often uh, discounted when it comes to a discussion. Well, I don't believe the Bible, so don't bring the Bible into it. But this is a book that I've read, and I haven't read many books three times in my life, but I've read this one three times. And this is called, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. So the subject that I'm going to address here, just for a few moments, this is a great book for you. If you want to know 
the whys of Christianity, not just the what, what do I believe, but why should I believe it? That's what this book is all about. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. It's by Norman Geisler. Norman Geisler passed away, went home to be with the Lord within the last couple years now, and a fellow named Frank Turek. He's much younger. If you looked up Frank Turek, he's an apologist. He's got all kinds of good stuff on the Internet. His last name is spelled T-U-R-E-K, Frank Turek. But this is something that all of us ought to have uh, uh, some knowledge of. How do I defend what I believe? How do I answer the guy that comes up and says, you know, I really don't believe in God. Why do you believe in God? Why do you? Because of Genesis 1-1? Well, that's a good reason, but that's probably not going to convince an atheist that he should believe in God because Genesis 1-1 speaks of God. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Now, there's really two things that speak of the existence of God that, uh, that we might look at initially. That would be, number one, creation, what we see, creation. Where did this come from? This is an effect, this building. If I told you that back about 100 years ago, there were two wagons driving down the street out here, they were loaded with bricks and mortar and wood and all kinds of stuff, and they crashed into one another, and all of the material on those two vehicles went flying up in the air and came down and landed just like this. This is the result of an accident that took place almost a hundred years ago. You would think that I've lost my mind. But if someone tells you that everything that we see in the universe is a result of an accident that took place 13.7 billion years ago, we're supposed to buy that because a university professor with a doctorate, an earned doctorate, says so. Well, that doesn't mean that he's not crazy also, okay? Just want you to know that letters after your name do not disqualify you from the nuthouse. They really don't. So um, the, there's creation, and the second thing is conscience. Everybody has a sense about them of right and wrong. We may have different things to some degree that we believe, but how many people would say, um, you know the Holocaust in World War II when six million Jews were executed as a result of Adolf Hitler's cleansing attempts? How many people in here would say, you know, I think that was a good thing? I don't know that anybody in here would. You can see, and generally it is accepted, that what took place there was evil. Well, why? If there is no God, if there is no right and wrong, if there is no such thing as absolute truth, why was the Holocaust wrong? In fact, I, from my understanding is there were many German people, if, if, uh, that is, if we get our ethics and our laws from the majority of people, there were many people in Ger Germany that thought that was okay and it was a good idea. So if they took a vote, and they never did, but if they took a vote and everybody said it's okay to kill six million Jews, does that mean it's okay because the majority said so? Men have a conscience, and there's something about killing people, murdering people, and to that extent, that is very distasteful and repulsive. Why? That's a conscience. That's Romans chapter 
number two speaks of our conscience. So those are the two things, really, the fact that we have a creation and that man has a conscience. But we can go beyond that. But those are the main things, just to start with. Now, let's... uh, Here's our our theme slide. He that cometh to God. That's a good thing to do. Cometh to God. He must cometh to God, must believe that he is. Give me the next slide, if you would, please. Now, these are six. There are more than this. I have a list of 20 different proofs or evidences for the existence of God. But these are probably the six most important. Now, I'm not going to give you all the skinny on each one of these, but I'm giving you at least a start, someplace you could go. Every one of the things that are up here are mentioned in the book that I just showed you by um, Geisler and Turek. And I'm just going to briefly explain each one of these. Let's, uh, let's go to number one. The first one is uh, the cosmological argument. The cosmos is the universe. And the cosmological argument is basically the, the argument of cause and effect. For every effect, there is a cause. Something has caused what we see. So if, uh, if you look at me right now, you see an effect. The cause of George Grace is I'm a product of a relationship that my father and my mother have had with one another, and I was produced as a result of their physical relationship with one another. So they're the cause, I'm the effect. Now, I said all that, so if I say something wrong, you can blame them and don't blame me. They're the cause, and I'm just an effect. No, I'm just saying, you understand what I'm saying, cause and effect. Everything in this room is an effect. Look around. Tell me something in this room that wasn't caused. Think of something in the whole world that wasn't caused. Something made it happen. The food in your refrigerator Where did it come from? Your clothing is an effect. What caused it? We could go back and think of many reasons that brought about even a simple piece of clothing that you're wearing on your back. There are many causes. So what an atheist has to say is essentially that that there is no cause. God is the cause that we believe in. Creation is the effect God is the causator or the cause of the effect. So at least we have a logical answer to where did the earth come from? The atheist has some choices that they can make or a list of things that they can choose from. Here we are. We can choose from this. Where did the universe come from? It made itself. Do you know anything that makes itself? And this is what I would do with an atheist. I'd say, could you give me an example of that? And they can't. There's no example of that. But they can say that and hope that you aren't smart enough to say, could you give me an example of that? And you go, gee, I never thought of that. Maybe the universe created itself. Boy, that's a neat idea. And a lot of people will, because they never thought of it, just fall fall right into that simple little trap, and the atheist gets off the hook. Second, the universe is eternal. Now, that was believed and has been believed over the whole history of mankind. And there's probably many people that believe that today. But science does not believe that. 
the second law of thermodynamics uh, teaches us that everything is essentially running down. The sun is burning out. We're burning up our resources. Now it could be a million years from now that they're all burned out or they're, they're exhausted, but at the same time, we believe that we live in an environment that is ultimately deteriorating. The idea that the universe is eternal is not scientifically plausible with everything else we know. In fact, when Albert Einstein finally figured that out, that the universe, because he believed it was eternal, when he finally figured out that it wasn't eternal, he was a very depressed individual because that said, well, there must have been a beginning. And if there's a beginning, there must be a beginner, a cause. Somebody caused this thing to begin. The universe came from nothing. In other words, in my friend, I mentioned the atheist friend that I've uh, had for several years. This is what he believes. He believes that the universe came from nothing. And the response is simple. Could you give me an example of that? Could you give me an example of something coming from nothing? And of course, there is no example. Well, let me do this. I'll bring forth my evidence. My evidence is that everything comes from something. So I'll start my list. Here's my list. Everything came from something. Now I want to see your list where the universe or anything came from nothing. There is no list over here. It's only his statement against my list of all of these things that I can prove came from something like me, like you, like this building, like your automobile, like your house. All of those things are, in a sense, creations, something that was created and not in the divine sense, but something that was made by someone else. You understand that. But this is what he believes because he's run out of options. He doesn't believe that the universe made itself. He doesn't believe that the universe is eternal. He's a scientist himself. And he doesn't believe that the universe was created. So what's left? The universe came from nothing. That's illogical. That's not plausible. Believable as far as I'm concerned because you can't give me one example of that. So let's go to the next one. That's causality, design, fine-tuning. Some people, some people uh, enjoy reading a man named Hugh Ross, and he is a scientist. He's an astrophysicist, and he's come up with 122 constants that must be in effect on Earth that allow human life to exist here. 122 different things. And if any one of them were to be changed, it would create havoc. And maybe certain ones that were changed, it would extinguish uh, life as we understand it on the planet. So what he is doing in the design argument is this building right here appears to have been designed. It wasn't the result of an explosion or an accident, but some people sat down and they decided what they wanted to build and they drew this all out 
architects, etc. They decided what the materials were going to be. They had all kinds of different uh, individuals who uh, understood weight limits and the, and the, the materials uh, that would go here. And I mean, how much weight is on this ceiling right now? How do you know that that ceiling is going to stay up there? Well, a structural engineer had to sit down and figure out what materials it would take to make this so the ceiling would stay up here and not cave in on it. You know that. This is simple stuff. In other words, this building was designed. You look at the complexity of the universe and say that it's an accident, it's just hard to believe. Could you show me another accident that is, com is complex? Show me some kind of an accidental happening that produces something that is useful and is good and complex is what we have here on planet Earth. See, that's not reasonable. But that's what an, one of the things that an atheist would reject is the whole idea. Some might even say it does appear to be designed, but we don't believe that it was. Next, if I may, design. The moral argument. The moral argument goes back to the idea of conscience. That is, that there are some things that all people would agree are wrong. You ought not to do that. What right in an evolutionary world do you have to say anything ought not to be done? Who are you? Who made you God? See, if there is no God, then there is no absolute right and wrong. So who are you to tell me what's right or wrong? Or are you to tell me that I ought not to go 85 miles an hour uh, out on a, in a 70 mile an hour speed limit? Now the police officer, they, they well, where do they get their authority to tell me I can only go 70 and 85? Who are those people? See, all authority goes back ultimately to an absolute authority and a conscience, God. So when we talk about the moral argument, the, the fact that there is such a thing as evil that necessitates that there must be something that's good. Because if there is no evil, then there is no good. There's no difference. Everything is just is the way it is. But when people say, well, I think that that's bad, they're making a judgment and saying, well, that's bad, but let me tell you what is good. Well, who are you to tell me what is good? Well, I can tell you the answer to that. He tells me what is good. He tell, God gives us moral principles that are spoken of in the Bible. Why do I believe that abortion is wrong? Because I believe it's the unnecessary taking of a human life. And I believe that life begins at conception. You might argue with that, but that's my belief. So my conscience says you don't kill an innocent child before it's born, or in New York State, you don't kill it when it is born. Partial birth abortion. The baby is coming down the birth canal. And you take a weapon and jam that weapon into the brain of that baby seconds before it's born on the operating table. In New York State, that's legal. That's okay. You say, well, it doesn't make it right. Well, I would agree it doesn't make it right. There's a lot of things that have been made legal that are not right or morally correct. But the moral argument says there is a sense about all of us that there is such a thing as moral right and wrong. Next, if you please. 
ontological. I'm not going to go into this. This is the most difficult of all. But basically, the ontological uh, argument says the, the thing that you can imagine to be the greatest of all beings must exist. Does that help you? You feel better about that? Neither do I. But that's what the argument is. And I, use, I don't use this argument, but it is an argument for the existence of God. Next, religious experience. 90% of people in the world are religious people. That doesn't mean they're Christian people, but it means they have a sense of spirituality. They have a sense about them that there's something greater than themselves. Uh, they may... Uh, uh, do all kinds of things. They, they may be into Satanism. They may be into polytheism. They may be uh, Muslims or Jews or Hindus or Eskimos that are worshiping ancestors or into spirit worship. But nine out of ten people in the world have a sensibility about them that there is something spiritual, I'll use that term, greater than themselves. So that is a, uh, a, it, I'm not saying it's a proof, it's evidence. These are evidences. These are evidences that there is a God. Now, why do so many people believe this? Because the atheist will take the other side. Well, the 10% that don't believe that, they're smart people. That's why they don't believe it. That's what they would tell you. C.S. Lewis said that man was made for more. There's something more. There's a sensibility about man that says this isn't all there is. There is something more, something bigger, something greater. And that sense is a sensibility that there's a, an existence of a being greater than mankind. The personal testimony of people is part of this. You know, Christ changed my life. Now, you can say, well, I don't believe in Christ, but I can tell you this. My belief in Jesus Christ turned my life around. It changed my life. So that's evidence. I didn't say it's absolute proof, but it's evidence that there's something about spirituality and a belief in God that is valid, the transformed life. And then just the whole thing about Bible history. Bible history and uh, reading the Bible and books about the Bible and the history that's in the Bible, all of the people that have believed in the struggle between paganism and, and, and uh, Judaism and barbarism and all this, all of that is, uh, there's something to that, that spirituality, there is something to uh, 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 spiritual truth. Next, if I may have the next one, the historical argument. By the way, this book by uh, 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 Geisler and Turek, this has a, a great part of this is the historical proof of Jesus Christ is one of the greatest proofs that there is a God. And he asks the question, is uh, Jesus a liar? A lunatic, or was he Lord? And goes through each one of those questions and answers them, uh, uh, answers the atheist who might ask questions like that. There's archaeological evidence. There's eyewitness testimony that's recorded in the Word of God that Jesus is a real person. More than 500 people he appeared to after he rose from the dead. And the verbal evidence, that is, the, the traditions and the stories that have been passed down from generation to generation generation about Christ, all of these things are historical evidences that Jesus has lived. Now, again, 
What is apologetics? Apologetics is a defense of your faith. This states why I believe what I believe. You can tell me what you believe. You could say something like, well, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he is God manifest in the flesh. He is the second person of the Trinity. You could say all that, and you could go to the scriptures, and you could pick out verses that say that's true. I know you can do that. But what if the person says, well, I don't believe the Bible? Now what you have to do is take a step back and say, well, let me prove to you that the Bible is trustworthy. Now what are you going to do? Now what are you going to do? Are you going to say, well, if you don't believe the Bible, I'm sorry, I just can't help you. (laughs) Is that what you're going to do? Apologetics takes a step backwards and says, here, let me try to help you see that the Bible is at least a historically accurate and dependable book. And then maybe we'll see that there's more to it than even being dependable when it comes speaking of historical things. So these are all, what's my next slide look like there, guys? There's moral objections. Some people will say, oh, well, how come there's so many religions in the world? Uh, that's moral pluralism or religious pluralism and the whole idea of existence of evil. But the statement that evil exists or the question, well, if there is a God, why does evil exist, actually is a self-defeating question. You say, well, what do you mean by that? It's self-defeating because if there is such a thing as evil, then you are suggesting to me that there is something that is good. And what is that? Who is the good if evil exists? When a person, when an atheist enters into the evil discussion, they are, uh, they are playing an away game because they're admitting that there's something opposite of evil, which is good. And where does good come from? From human beings? By voting on what's good? Like the Holocaust? So you have to be a little bit of a thinker here. And books like this particular book are very helpful to get your thoughts organized. And going to a Bible institute, hello, going to a Bible institute and subjecting your mind to teaching that makes you think and organize your theological and rational thoughts and why you believe what you believe is extremely helpful to you as a Christian. It says, for without faith, it is impossible to please him, God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that, this is you, diligently seek him. Are you diligently seeking him? Are you seeking to be a better Christian, more knowledgeable, having a greater ability to defend the beliefs that you hold so dear. Your eternal fate is wrapped up in believing, John 3, 16, believing that the Bible is the word of God, believing that you must be born again, believing in salvation by grace through faith. Your eternity is wrapped up in that. Are you diligently Preparing yourself and studying so you can declare 
and defend what you believe. I'm challenging you. God is pleased with that. When you take that piece of paper and you sign your name and you say, I'm going to sign up for this course because as far as I'm concerned, this is part of diligently seeking God. I need more knowledge. I need to be a better, well, more well-informed Christian. When you do that, God goes, good boy, <laughs> good girl, attaboy. That's good. Glad to see that you're taking a step in that direction. You're increasing your knowledge and your ability to be a witness for Jesus Christ. Give me the next slide, if you would. Apologetics, the defense of the faith, leads to systematic theology. That is, systematizing what you believe. What does the Bible say about the divinity of Christ? What does the Bible say about heaven? What does the Bible say about sin? What does the Bible say about future things, eschatology. What does the Bible say about the Trinity? What does the Bible say about God? That's systematic theology. That's when we get the, the what of Christianity, what I believe. But apologetics is the why I believe it. And that's equally as important. Not just what you believe, but why you believe it. But we're to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Give me the next slide, if you would. And he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. All right, this is my last, this would be my fourth sermon, all right? We're just a little bit after 11 o'clock. I'm right on. All right. You, this pleases God. When you believe that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him, when we pulled into the parking lot just a little while ago in Alan's car, there was a parking spot right up front. And I said, Alan, this is the favor of God. We don't have to park way over there and walk all the way back to that building. Now, I, I was saying that lightly, but how do I know it wasn't? How do I know? Now, I'm not sure that God God could care about that. I'm not sure he does care about that. But the fact of the matter is, God rewards us for being diligently seekers. Now, the passages that I'm going to give you are going to go by pretty quickly here. What I need to do is, I don't have the verses spelled out here on, on the screen, but I do have them written in my notes. So I'm not going to read all of them but I'll read part of them so you can get the idea that the Bible says that this is pleasing to God if you believe that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So the first thing on my list, and I, and I put this purposely here, is prayer and fasting. Since we have been talking about prayer, God rewards people who pray. This is not just some some laborious responsibility that God's put on you to do it. But the Bible tells us that he rewards people who pray. Maybe you might get an answer to your prayer, tongue in cheek. But let me read this verse. But thou, I'm reading from Matthew chapter 6. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Do you believe that? That's faith. God said that. God said he re will reward your prayer life. 
Do you believe that? And why wouldn't I do that? Among many other reasons why I should pray, God says, and you know what? I know you're a human being. I know you're always looking for something in everything that is good for you. You say, okay, God, I'll pray, but what's in it for me? And God says, I know that you're a selfish Christian, so I'll tell you what. I'm going to make allowances for people like you, and frankly, I will reward you if you pray. There is something in it for you. Oh, and when you believe that, you please God. That's what Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says. Let's do the next slide. Compassion for the vulnerable. Matthew chapter 25 says this. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee in hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. God rewards faithfulness and caring for the vulnerable. You did something for me? You think you can outgive God? You do God a favor, and God says, well, thank you very much, and uh, I noticed it, but we'll leave it at that. God rewards people who put God's principles first in their life. Those that believe that he's a rewarder and that they will diligently seek him. How about love for your enemies? This is a tough one for all of us. Maybe you don't have any enemies, so you don't know what I'm talking about. But Luke chapter 6 says, But love ye your enemies, and do good, and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest, for he is kind unto thee. So, there's a reward for loving your enemies. There's a reward. And, you know, in a, we live in a divided time right now. All of us have probably something or somebody that we don't particularly appreciate. And you might even, you might not use the term enemy, but down deep, there's something that you just, you detest this about another individual. Loving your enemies. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How about this one? I love this. This is from Luke chapter 6. God rewards generous giving. For without faith, it's impossible to please him. And he, he is pleased by those that come to God and believe that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that ye meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. You'll be rewarded for your generosity. How about your hospitality to those who cannot repay you, who can do nothing for you? Oftentimes we do things for people 
expecting that they will do something in return. You know, we're kind of uh, priming the pump for their generosity. We take them out to dinner, and we hope that they will invite us to their cottage for a weekend during the summer. We're looking for a benefit with some interest on it. You know what I'm talking about? Am I the only one that understands that? Well, let me read you a verse. Luke chapter 14 says, Then said he also to him that bade him, When thou makest a dinner or a supper, call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, neither thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again. They'll pay you back. And a recompense made to thee. But when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and thou shalt be blessed. For they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. God says, you take care of people who are disenfranchised. You take care of people that have nothing to give back to you. You just be generous without an ulterior motive to people. Give to the poor. Give to the blind. Give to the naked, expecting nothing in return. And God says, I see that, and I will bless you. I will bless you for that. Now, if you believe that, that pleases God. And if you believe that, you will act in faith upon that promise in God's word. Like Abraham. Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. What did he believe? Abraham, you're going to be the father of many nations. And Abraham said, amen. He staggered not at the promises. Do you? Do you stagger at the promises? God says, you be generous to people who can't be generous to you, and God will bless you. Do you believe that? This is what Christianity is all about. It's easy to go out there and buy some high roller lunch hoping that they'll invite you to their vacation paradise next year. It's easier than finding somebody who has nothing to give to you and you do something for them just to make life easier, to show the love of Christ to somebody. God says, I saw that. I'll reward you. But without faith, it is impossible to please God. For them that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Give me the next slide, if you would, up here. There's other things. The next slide, I know where I'm going to I'm going to skip some of these just for time. All of these are slides that talk about God's blessing. Next, next Next, one more. Give me another slide. This is Jude 3. This is where I want to go. This is where I'm going to wrap up. We've got just a few minutes left. Jude 3, little book, little book toward the end of your New Testament. Them that diligently seek him. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation... It was needful for me to write unto you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith. Diligently seek him. 
earnestly contend for the faith. Give me the next slide if you would. Let's define our terms here. What does it mean to earnestly contend? Next slide, please. Earnestly. Now, this is what God is looking for in me, in you. He's looking for a person who is characterized by or proceeding from an intense and serious state of mind, gravely or ardently intent, and synonyms are eager, zealous, ardent, and sincere. That's what earnestly means. Earnestly contend for the faith. You've got a Bible institute. You've got ministries in church. Probably you've got some vacancies. In need of a child worker or a discipler or a musician in the praise band. You have the gift and you have the talent to fill that vacancy, that void. Why wouldn't you do that? Are you earnestly contending for the faith? That's what pleases God diligently seeking him. Give me the next slide, if you would. Contend. There's another word. What does that mean? To strive in opposition or rivalry. To compete. You know what my son-in-law, my son-in-law, when he's standing there at that foul line, he's got this down to his science. His toe is at the same place. His hands are in the same relative position on that ball and the same stripes and all the stuff on the ball. And he begins to shoot foul shots. One, two, 27, 38, 45, 72. 679, 106. And I'm standing there. Boom, boom, boom. My son-in-law is a contender. You don't want to play him in any sport. I've got my money on him, and I don't care who you are and how good you are at what you do. You give him one week, and he'll figure out how to play it and beat you. That's my... He's a contender. He competes. We're competing. We're competing in a spiritual warfare against an enemy that's trying to destroy everybody in this room and your family and the families of people who are your friends and relatives. Competition. Earnestly contend for the faith. Diligently seek him. Give me the next one here, if you would. For the faith. Isn't that where we started? Faith, the systematic theology of the biblical gospel truth founded upon the complete reliance upon Jesus Christ for salvation. That's where we started this study. We're to earnestly contend for the faith we talked about a couple days ago. We're supposed to be serious. That was one of the synonyms. Serious. We're just not showing up at a camp to have fun, be with our friends, get a couple bad meals or whatever it is. I don't know why you're here. Miss a, miss a good night's sleep by staying up all night? I don't know. But we're here contending for the faith. We're here to try to get better. Amen. We're in a competition, and it's real. My opinion this whole pandemic thing, it's spiritual warfare, friends. How you doing? Yeah, I ain't going to church if I'm going to wear a mask, you little baby. 
I'm not going to go to church. I think, there's a, I think there is a conspiracy. I don't like the president. I don't like the vice president. I don't like uh, all of the people. I don't like anybody anymore, as a matter of fact. This is spiritual warfare. That's my opinion. How you doing? A lot of Christians are folding, man. Division among Christians. Hey, what we're doing here, this is the bigger and more important of all. I'm not going to argue with people about masks and washing my hands every 20 seconds or whatever they want me to do. Social distancing, I'm going to carry a six-foot rod with me wherever I am to keep people away from me, you know. I'm going to comply. But there's more to this than COVID-19. There's more to this. Who would have ever imagined that the whole world could be brought to its knees over a virus in such a short period of time. Earnestly contend for the faith. It's an athletic term used for competition. We're in a competition, people. That's what Jude is talking about. Earnestly contend for the faith. That's where I leave my sermon here today and everything I've said I am challenging you to be better than you were when you came in here. You say, well, who are you? I am here to represent the gospel of Jesus Christ. I didn't tell you to do something that the Bible doesn't tell you to do. The Bible tells us to earnestly contend. For it is impossible. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently diligently, I'm talking to you and me, diligently, earnestly contend for the faith. Walk out of here, get in your car, and leave with a new purpose in your mind that you're going to be better than when you showed up here on Wednesday. You can be, and so can I. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the privilege the opportunity to come together at this camp. All of the people, our friends, our pastors, workers in our churches that have made this a wonderful time and a wonderful place to be. God, I know that we've had to experience some restrictions, but we're all still here. We're eating food, sleeping. We've got everything we need. And God, we praise you and thank you for all of that. Help us to leave better than when we walked in here on Wednesday. And we want to do that for the honor and glory of the Lord Jesus. And it is my goal, I hope our goal, to please you. You've created us for your pleasure. May we fulfill that purpose. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. God bless you, everybody. Thank you.